Point Church of Brandon. I'm glad that you are with us this morning. We are continuing in our study in the book of John. We're actually starting a new quarter, but our study is continuing from last quarter. And today what I want us to do is, and that's the purpose of our lesson today, is to look at giving of ourselves, or as it is often put, uh, the servanthood. And that's what we refer to it often as. I want to start by reading John 18, verses 1 through 3. When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Last week, when we left off in our story, the Last Supper had taken place. Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. And then he stopped, and he actually prayed. And we, a rather lengthy prayer, but he prayed for himself that he would be able to continue what the mission that he had been sent to do. He prayed for his disciples that when he was gone that they would be able to continue what he had sent them out to do. And he prayed for us because it says he prayed for those, all those that the disciples would reach. And that would include us today. After he finished with his prayer, it says that, that Jesus got up and he walked across the Kidron Valley and he went into an olive grove. In other places, this place where he went is called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he went in there to pray. His disciples followed him. He had 11 faithful disciples that went with him. But the important thing to realize here is he did this knowing full well what was going to happen when he got there. It wasn't like Jesus was walking into a trap. He knew that the, the end of his life was soon to come, but he got up from his prayer, he went to where he needed to go, knowing what was going to happen. Now, if he had been trying to avoid arrest, this would not be the place he would go. If he was going to resist arrest, this would not be the place he'd want to go. If he was trying to avoid arrest, this would not be the place because it says that Jesus often went there with his disciples which means Judas knew exactly where this place was, so it wouldn't be a very good hiding place. If he was going to resist those that were coming after him, he wouldn't pick a place that is obscure out in an olive grove, away from town, away from his followers. He would have gone right in the middle of town where his followers could jump in and help him. But he didn't do that. He went to this particular place for a particular purpose. says in John that Jesus and his disciples were followed by Judas and a detachment of soldiers. Now, it's curious to see how many soldiers was a detachment of soldiers. The, the word actually is translated from a Greek word, spiran, which is also translated to another word, cohort. A cohort 
consisted of 600 men. Now, there's a couple of reasons, like a lot of things in the Bible, there's different explanations as to why this word was being used. One of these is that there were actually 600 men that went to get Jesus. That's a possibility. It's a possibility that 600 men went, some of them stayed outside the grove, and some of them went in to get Jesus. Now, I will say this. It would be difficult to sneak up on somebody with 600 men. And they thought they were sneaking up on him. Another explanation is that just because it says that a cohort arrested Jesus, it doesn't mean that 600 men went on a mission. This is why I say that. Sometimes we say that a person was arrested by the police department or they were arrested by the sheriff's department. It doesn't mean the entire police department or the entire sheriff's department went out to arrest him. So it could be that also. Either way, they didn't really need but one guy because Jesus wasn't going to fight him. But they took a bunch of people expecting some type of an uprising. And there was a large number of soldiers. Some some Bible scholars and commentaries say that there was probably around 200 soldiers. From other accounts in the in the Gospels, not necessarily in John's, we see that the disciples spent much of their time out there before the soldiers showed up sleeping. Jesus wasn't sleeping. Jesus was actually praying. He was agonizing over the need for him to die. If you read through the prayers that he prayed, he really, this was the, the human side of Jesus agonizing over the fact that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be beaten. Of all the suffering that was to take place, the human part of Jesus Christ was, was just agonizing over having to do that. And eventually, he conquered this final reluctance through these prayers. And some people would say, well, what do you mean reluctance? He was Jesus. Why would he have reluctance to... Because he was Jesus. And because Jesus was a man. And here's something that that I think is very important. And we've talked about this before, but I was just talking recently to someone about this. And it's very important for us to realize that we can't take away the humanity of Jesus. Because if we do, and then we say, well, you have to remember he was God in the flesh. If we just look at it that way, then it kind of takes away the whole sacrificial offering. Yes, he was God in the flesh. He was God with skin on. But he was also a man that the Bible says felt everything just as we do. He suffered all things just as we do. And there's some people, they lean towards this idea. They start saying, well, since he was God, he really didn't feel anything. And he had supernatural strength and No, he felt everything just as we do. He didn't have supernatural strength because he was God with flesh on. He was a man. When he was beaten, it hurt. When they ran nails through his hands, it hurt. He got thirsty because when he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. So we have to realize that it wasn't this superman disguised as a man and nothing, none of this bothered him. It did bother him. He prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he finally, when he was, when he was okay with it, he said, not my will, but, but yours be done. Because he struggled with it. 
He struggled with giving himself for people he didn't even know. He struggled, I believe, with with giving his life and suffering for people that didn't even like him. But he did it anyway. It took the sacrifice of a man. In fact, God's only begotten Son is what the Bible says to pay for our sins. Had it just been God Himself come down and act like a man, it really wouldn't have been the same. It would have still been God. And we would have looked at it and said, well, you know, when Jesus went out in the wilderness and He fasted for 40 days, He really didn't get hungry. Yeah, He did. He really did. And when He walked long distances, He got tired. And we can't take away that humanity when we get to this time of year and we look at at Easter coming up and we know the events that surround that, we have to realize that the, the physical man Jesus was every much a man as you and I are. He felt everything exactly like we did and like we do. So we come to a point in the garden where now he had prayed, now he was at peace with what he had to do, And now he was ready to lay his life down for me and you. John 18, verses 4 through 11. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, this is the men that showed up with Judas, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is a very interesting part of this this whole story. When Jesus confronted the men that had come to take him, he exhibited authority. He didn't wait and hide somewhere until they came and said, where's Jesus? He walked right up to him and said, who are you looking for? Um, Jesus. He pretty much said, state your business. What do you want? And it's just, it's really amazing to see that in spite of all the events that Jesus was in charge of the situation. He knew who they were. He knew why they were there. And so he approached them without fear. It was no surprise that they were there. And so he had no problem walking up and saying, what do you want? He actually initiated the conversation. And they answered his question by saying, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And his response was, I am he. And this response is is kind of interesting because 
This response actually points to Jesus' divinity. In verses 5 through 8, he uses that term, I am he, three times. And I believe it was a direct response to the ancient Hebrew term of Yahweh, which is rendered, I am that I am. And if you go to Exodus 3 and 14, when Jesus, or when God spoke to Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And Jesus used that same terminology. Well, we're just looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And it's interesting also to see what their reaction was. Because this term he was using, referring to Yahweh, was the most revered form for a name of God. And the authority, the authority that he spoke with when he made this de- declaration, it staggered these men that were standing there. And verse 6 says that they drew back and fell to the ground. He didn't cast a spell on them. All he said was, I am he. And they drew back and they fell down on the ground. Why is that? Well, as with many other situations, there's several different explanations as to why. One is that they were ironically bowing to Jesus that had just announced, I am he, implying that he was God. They looked and said, whoa, this guy's saying he's God. And they bowed down and fell on the ground. And it's even more ironic that Judas fell down on the ground with them, which means he acknowledged that he knew that he was God. Another explanation is that the soldiers were struck by Jesus' calm demeanor and they fell back almost in shock. Here we are to take this guy away and he's just as calm as he can be. What's going on here? Let's step back and take a look at this situation. Another view is that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. If you go to the book of Psalm, chapter 27, and verse 2, It says, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. So it's possible that that was a prophetic speaking from Psalm, and this was a fulfillment of it. But Jesus continues to clarify the situation. He made sure that his arresters knew that he was the one they were looking for, not his disciples. I'm the one you're looking for. Let these people go. He just stepped right up. Why? He was giving himself so that these men weren't punished. These men have done nothing. You're looking for me? Just take me with you. Besides that, he was the only one that could be sacrificed to make a difference. If they would have killed the the other 11 disciples and not killed Jesus, it wouldn't have done any good. They would have just died. He had to be the one that was sacrificed. Of course, then you have Peter. Being the impulsive person that he was, he was very quick to react. And while Jesus was dismissing the disciples and telling these guys, you want me, let these guys go, and here's their out, he's basically dismissing them to leave, Peter jumps into action. And Luke's account... In fact, in Luke 22 and 38, 
See, the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough. So we know from Luke's account that they had two swords against probably 200 soldiers. The word translated here as sword could either refer to a long knife or a short sword. The fact that Peter reacted so quickly and and it wasn't foreseen, it suggests that whatever it was, he had it hidden under his garments. He whips out this sword and says, Hey, look, Jesus, we have two swords here. We'll fight them. So what's Peter do? He attacks one of the men that's closest to him. The man happens to be a slave of one of the high priests, and his name is Malchus. Now remember that Peter was a fisherman by trade, not a skilled swordsman. And while I'm sure that Peter's intention was to chop off Malchus's head, either his accuracy was so bad, or Malchus decided to duck, because what he managed to do was cut off his ear. And I don't think that's what his intention was. You don't go up to somebody with a sword and say, stand back or I'll cut off your ear. He was trying to cut his head off. He just wasn't any good at it. And Jesus looks at Peter in verse 11, and this is the the new David Goldsberry translation, and Jesus looks at Peter and he shakes his head and he goes, Peter, 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 put your knife down. You just don't get it, do you, Peter? Peter, should I not finish what the Father sent me to do? And I believe Jesus looks back at the group of people that were there to arrest him, and he says, sorry about that. You have to excuse him. He gets really excited. ADD. Then in Luke's account, in Luke 22 and 51, it says that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. He put it back on and reattached it, which is pretty cool. And what this account shows us again is that Jesus was not only in control of his foes, he was in control of his disciples. He was completely in control of the entire situation. In John 18, verses 12 through 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. The result of the confrontation in the garden was that Peter cut off somebody's ear, Jesus put it back on, and then they bound Jesus and they led him away. And it's, it's interesting to see this irony that's taking place here. When we look at the story, we, say that Jesus, we see that Jesus is held captive by the soldiers, but it was really the religious leaders that were captive. Jesus went on his own. And these religious leaders, they were still held captive to sin and their their lust for power and their greed. They were the real captives. They didn't have to bind Jesus' hands. He would have gone along with them. 
They could have sent a little boy out to get him. So he goes with them. And they take him to a man named Annas. Annas was a high priest for many years. He was removed from office by Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus. And although he was removed from office, he still held a considerable amount of power. And one reason is that the law of Moses said that a high priest should be appointed for life. And so the, even though he was removed by the Roman leader of that time, the Jewish people said the law of Moses says he's a high priest for life, so we say he's still a high priest regardless of what you do. So Anna still held a great deal of power. Jewish historian Josephus wrote that as many as five of Annas' sons held the office of high priest as well as his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas. And history tells us that, that Annas and his family were quite a dynasty of high priests. They were very powerful. They were quite wealthy. And they were also very greedy. So here it is that the high priest of all the ages, Jesus Christ, is brought before a corrupt Jewish high priest. And both Annas and Caiaphas interrogate Jesus, but it was Caiaphas that thought Jesus should die. And his reasoning was that it's, it's better to murder one man than to risk having the Romans step up their oppression because they felt they were threatened by a popular leader. Let's kill Jesus. The Romans are already all over us. We have soldiers everywhere. If we don't do something, they're going to see this Jesus guy as a threat. They're going to send more soldiers. So let's just kill him. In other words, let's just leave this, let's kill this guy so the Romans will leave us alone. But without knowing it, Caiaphas was helping to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ because in verse 14, look what he said. It would be good if one man died for the people. You know, I'd never noticed that before. It would be good if one man died for the people. And when it, that hit me as I was studying, all of a sudden I got these like chilled doodad things going up and down my spine. He said it. He said the very words of what Jesus was here for. So, we see that Jesus stood in place of his in front of his disciples and said, take me, I'm the one you're looking for. Leave these men alone. They haven't done anything. Even when Peter, being the impulsive person that he was, when he chopped off this guy's ear, they could have arrested Peter. But to fix it, Jesus picked up this guy's ear and put it back on. So Jesus was placing himself in harm's way so that the disciples weren't harmed. He was giving of himself. And ultimately, he gave the, the ultimate sacrifice of giving his life. And today we're looking at, well, how can we do that? How can we give of ourselves in the way that Jesus did? There's a story told about a little British orphan staring longingly into this window of a donut shop right after World War II. And the scent of this donut shop had his mouth watering, but he didn't have any money. And he was quietly praying for something good to eat. And an American soldier happened to come by and he said, you want something? 
gesturing towards the bakery. And the little boy nodded. And so the American soldier went inside and he bought a dozen donuts and silently handed the bag to the little boy. And the little boy took the bag and he looked up at the soldier and he said, Mr., are you God? And as trite and cliched as it might sound, and as tired as this phrase might be, we really might be the only God that some people ever see. It wasn't a phenomenal act. This soldier didn't raise someone from the dead. He bought a bag of donuts. But because of that, this little boy looked at him and said, Are you God? Albert Schweitzer said this, You must give some time to your fellow men. Even if it's a little thing, do something for others, something for which you get no pay, but the privilege of doing it. What was Jesus' reward for doing something for his disciples? He was crucified. Not much of a reward. Often when we we do things for others, it goes unnoticed. But if we are doing it for the right reason, then we're not doing it for notoriety anyway. And it really shouldn't matter. And it's easy to say that. But when we do something, we kind of want to get recognized sometimes. It's human nature. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go out and and we let somebody beat us and, and nail us to a cross. I'm not saying that we have to give that way. First of all, it's already been done. And second of all, it wouldn't accomplish anything. Certainly not salvation. But what I am suggesting is that we give of ourselves so that the world will look at us and not see us, but see God through us. And see the reflection of God. It's not about recognition here on earth. Often we do things and the only people that see the actions we do are us, the people that we did them to, and then God, of course, sees it. And you know what? That's okay. But as we said, it's human nature to look around and say, well, how come that person gets all the glory because of what they do and no one says anything about what I do? Oh, I would never say that. Well, a lot of times we all do. We see somebody that gets all this attention for the things they do and we do just as much, just in a different way and nobody ever says a word to us. So what's my motivation? People that truly follow the example of Jesus in giving of themselves, those who reach out to care for people as Jesus did, are primarily primarily motivated by gratitude for the way that Christ served them with his death. What's my motivation? I look at what Jesus Christ did. That's all the motivation I need. Because anything I would do for anybody in this life will never be equal to what he did for me. So what's my motivation? What's been done for me? My sins have been forgiven. 
I could never do anything that a person's sins could be forgiven. So should I be motivated to go out and help other people? Absolutely. And these people that do it in that way have found that a, a supernatural byproduct of their servanthood is that God has this tendency to flow satisfaction back into their lives as well. As they reach out and they help somebody and they're given of themselves, they find this amazing supernatural reward that comes back from God. Fulfillment is not their goal. But in the end, it's what they receive. Because when God rewards us, it might not be with money, it might not be with things, but He will reward us for what we do. John Newton was a slave trader before Christ transformed his life. He's probably best remembered for writing the song Amazing Grace. And John Newton made an interesting comment about servanthood. He said, if two angels in heaven were given assignments by God at the same instant, one of them to go and rule over the greatest nation on earth and the other to go sweep the streets of the dirtiest village. Each angel would be completely indifferent as to which one got which assignment. It simply wouldn't matter to them. Why? Because their joy lies in being obedient to God. It's not the task... It's in the obedience. As true Christians, the important thing isn't what God has us doing. The important thing is that we're doing what God wants us to do. We'll say that again. As true Christians, the important thing isn't what God has us doing. The important thing is that we're doing what God wants us to do. It's not what you do, it's the fact that you do. God has called, and I've said this so many times and I will continue to say, God has called each of us to service for Him. And it's not important what He's called you to do, the important thing is that you do it. If He has called you to preach, then you need to preach. But if He's called you to be the parking lot person, then be the parking lot person. And be the most spiritual, spirit-filled parking lot person that has ever been. I look at these two ladies that work and they change out the sign and the message is on the sign. You know what? That is a ministry. There's people that drive by this, this property Every day, thousands of people, and they see that message on the sign. How do I know? Because I've had people say, oh, I know, that's the place that has the green sign out front. It's not so important as to what God has called us to do, it's that we do what God has called us to do. Now, I'm not saying that His servants that we should constantly be abused and abuse ourselves or become passive doormats. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that. Because God will never call you to do that. 
What I am saying is that servanthood inevitably carries cost. But even when the cost is high, God can bring fulfillment to those that follow his leading. Sometimes we emerge from some of the things that God puts us through and allows to happen to us. And we suffer some things that are painful. Sometimes we emerge from these situations with some scars. Sometimes the scars are physical and sometimes they're emotional. And while it's hard for us to see the good in it, here's the good part. Because of those situations, those painful situations that you've had to go through in your life, because you went through them, God can open up opportunities to you to touch others who are going through a similar situation. So that when someone is going through that, and you sit down and you say to them, I know what you're going through. You really do know what they're going through. Without having gone through it, can you really feel what that person feels? In psychology, it's called identifying. And we see a situation and we identify it because we can see it that it happened in our life. So you wonder why God is allowing you to go through a situation? Because He has something for you in the future and a place that you can use that. And one of the thrills for a servant of Christ is that when their love of Jesus shines through so much that someone opens up to God for the very first time, it's then that we get to watch this person's life transformed. When we share with somebody, when we show love and we show gratitude to someone and and we reach out and we help someone and they see the love of Christ in us and they in turn turn their heart over to God, we get to see the transformation that takes place. God allows us to see their values transformed. Their relationships renewed. Their characters overhauled and their priorities all rearranged. Why? Because we let our life be a reflection of the love of God. And we gave of ourself. And in order for this to happen, sometimes it means we might have to get our hands dirty. It might mean that we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve. And it might mean that we might also suffer some scars. Bill Hybels is the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. Listen to what he said. I would never want to reach out to some reach out someday with a soft, uncalloused hand, a hand never dirtied by serving, and shake the nail-pierced hand of Jesus. If we have never used these hands, and gotten them dirty, gotten them roughed up a little bit maybe. When we get to heaven, how are we going to feel when we reach out and we grasp that hand with a scar where a nail was went pierced through it? So what are the things we can all do? And this is by 
no means a comprehensive list, but it's some practical ideas. We can carry a smile with us. We can share it with everyone. When we say hello, we smile and we mean it. When we say God bless you, we mean it. When we say, you know what, I'll pray for you, we do it. When we see somebody, we shake their hand or we we put our, our arm around them in sincerity. Do you ever notice the different ways that people shake hands? I went to a a class, several classes, on body language and so forth. And one of the one of the things that they talked a lot about was shaking people's hands and all the different kinds of handshakes, what they mean. And there's some that are really more sincere than others. When you shake somebody's hand and it's like this, you don't really feel that they're being very sincere in their greeting. So shaking hands can be something important. Helping someone that needs help crossing the street. Helping someone complete a task that they just are having trouble with. You see somebody carrying something that is too heavy or too bulky or, and you help them. Picking up or cleaning up after something's been spilled or knocked over or dropped that you didn't spill or knock over or dropped. You let somebody that's in a hurry go in front of you when you're standing in line. As you go through a toll booth, you pay for the person behind you. You go, well, that's silly. Try it sometime. The people, it doesn't matter how fast you go, they'll catch up with you. Because they'll want to see what a person looks like that would do that. And you just smile. Take time to give directions to someone that needs it. Listen without judging to someone's problems or concerns. Give a ride to a neighbor, maybe that doesn't drive anymore. Drive a friend or a coworker home because they don't have transportation. Frequently let those close to you who have helped you or those that have inspired you know how much that you appreciate them. Now see, all of these things we've just listed here, they don't cost anything. They're not painful. And you go, well, they just don't seem that big a deal. You realize sometimes a simple handshake and a smile, what it can mean to somebody in their day. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things will save anybody. And they won't save you because you did them. But they do reflect the love of God. And if we are striving to be like Jesus, if we can't do these things, we certainly can't go out and do anything that's grand. The important thing would be if, if we are able to do these things in the light of, of God, 
is shown through us, and in turn, that person gives their heart to God. That's what really makes a difference. And it's not so they see us. The idea is not we we do something nice for somebody so they, they think we're a nice person. We do something nice for somebody so that they say, you know what, I can see that that person is a real follower of God. That person is really a Christian. That person really has an attitude like Jesus Christ. There's something different. And you know what? Practical ways of giving of ourselves do not have to be complicated or really time-consuming. You see somebody... The, the other day, I pulled up in front of a convenience store, and this, this older man was coming from the gas pump, and he didn't see the step up, and boom, he hit that, fell down on the concrete, and it just it hurt me just to watch him fall. You know what? It didn't cost me anything to walk over there and grab his arm and say, Are you okay? Can I call anybody for you? That doesn't make me a great person. Those are the things that as Christians we should do. And no, I didn't drag out my Bible and start preaching to him. But I hope that through that, that he saw Christ in me. He'll never remember me, what I looked like or anything else. But if he saw Christ in me, he'll remember that. There's a commercial on TV that I just, I absolutely love this commercial. And it's, it's an insurance company, I think. It's one of those that you don't remember what the, they're advertising, you just remember the commercial. And it starts with one person doing something for somebody. Here's a guy with, with his Walkman going and he's not paying any attention and he starts to step out in front of a car and a lady grabs, pushes him back. And the next thing you see that he's walking along and he sees something getting ready to happen and he stops and helps that person. And it goes through several people, and each one does another thing to help somebody, and then the commercial ends right back where it started. That's really what the idea is. Not that we just go around and, and, and we're, we're saved because we do good deeds, but we do good deeds because we're saved. When we call ourselves Christians, and we know that being a Christian means Christ-like, then we must give of ourselves the way that Christ did. And again, we're not asking you to go out and be crucified. It's those little things that we can do for one another. You see a person coming down the steps, not here, but anywhere, and you see that they're kind of struggling a little bit. And you grab their hand and you help them. That, that's not a big deal to you. But it might be to them. If we are truly committed to giving of ourselves, we will soon discover that the practical ways of doing that are endless. When that becomes a lifestyle, when giving of ourselves becomes a lifestyle, and I'm not talking about giving people money and stuff like that. I'm talking about giving of ourselves. 
We will see that these opportunities are endless and they will present themselves to us every day in ways from simply sharing a smile to sharing our time. You know, one of the greatest ways of sharing the gospel for someone that's not real, doesn't feel comfortable in public speaking, is to get a a CD or a tape of a message that, that particularly touched your heart. They're free. And give it to somebody. And say, you know what? I want you to listen to this. And this morning when I was back turning all the stuff on and and looking for something back in the sound room and and all that stuff back there, I saw a stack of CDs that if you stacked them one on top of another would probably reach to the ceiling. Why? Because we record every service. How simple is it to walk back there after service and say, Jeffrey Daniel, would you all make me a copy of this particular and share it with someone. What I'm saying is, the things that matter aren't always big things. And you don't know how that might touch someone's life. St. Francis of Assisi had a prayer. And I, I just think it's particularly pertinent to what we're talking about this morning, and I want to read it. It says, Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. Where there is doubt, true faith in you. O Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love with all my soul. Make me a channel of your peace, Where there is despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And where there is sadness, ever joy. Make me a channel of your peace. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, in giving of ourselves that we receive, and in dying that we are born to eternal life. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord, and where there is doubt, true faith in you. If you ever feel that the things that you do are always done in obscurity, nobody notices, and because nobody notices, it doesn't matter. First of all, that's not true. But I want to close with something that G.D. Watson said in his book, Living Words. The Lord may let others be honored and put forward and keep you hidden in obscurity because He wants you to produce some choice, fragrant fruit for His coming glory, which can only be produced in the shade. So if there's a time when you feel like you're your things you do don't matter. It's possible that what God is working on you to do can't really be produced out in the sunlight. 
it doesn't make it any less important. It actually makes it special. Tony. Very good. Very good. And I will close with this. To God be the glory, not to us. And remember that in Matthew it said to let our light shine before men, not so that people will take notice of us, but so that they will ultimately praise your Father that's in heaven. God bless you.